everyone, it's Lauren Hawker-Zaffer. Welcome back to Redefining AI, the tech podcast. I'm an educator and I'm taking you on an educational exploration into the fascinating minds of those that embody and forefront all you need to know about artificial intelligence, machine learning, insight engines and the insights era. This episode today is called What Makes Us Human? and artificial intelligence answers life's biggest questions. And to discuss this, I've been joined by the fabulously creative mind that is Ian S. Thomas. Ian is one of the world's most popular poets and is the best-selling creator and author of numerous books, including I Wrote This For You, an experimental and pioneering prose and photography project. He has spoken toured and read his work all over the world and appeared on panels at numerous conferences, including BookCon in New York and the Sarja International Book Fair in the UAE. In November 2022, Ian released a book entitled What Makes Us Human? An Artificial Intelligence Answers Life's Biggest Questions. To make What Makes Us Human, Ian and the innovative researcher Jasmine Wang collaborated with OpenAI's GPT-3, an advanced artificial intelligence. GPT-3 Generative Pre-trained Transformer 3 is a state-of-the-art language processing AI model developed by OpenAI. It is capable of generating human-like text and has a wide range of applications, including language translation, language modeling, and generating text for applications such as chatbots. It is one of the largest and most powerful language processing AI models to date, with 175 billion parameters. Wang and Thomas prompted GPT-3 with some of humanity's greatest texts and then asked GPT-3 our most pressing questions. Contained in what makes us human are the conversations and exchanges that followed. What makes us human is a groundbreaking endeavor to explore human spirituality through the evolving technology of artificial intelligence. Now, what makes this exciting is that with the launch of ChatGPT a few weeks ago and the near approaching publication of GPT-4, our conversation today is what I would classify as socially applicable and of increasing interest to many fields, individuals and organisations. Ian, welcome to Redefining AI. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Ian, you're based in uh, New York, I believe. Is that right? I am. (laughs) I am just outside New York in in New Jersey, but close enough to New York that I can say New York. Is that where you grew up? No, 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 no. I I grew up um, in Port Elizabeth, which is a a tiny town on the tip of South Africa. Um, And I spent the first 18 years of my life there. Then I moved to Cape Town. Um, we've only been in America for about a, a year and a bit. So it's it's quite a recent uh, transition. Oh, okay. Um, mm. So what was it like growing up in South Africa? I had a relatively unique childhood. Um, you know, obviously it was incredibly turbulent because I grew up during the 80s um, in South Africa during apartheid. Um, and so there was a lot of political turmoil Um 
And then at the same time, there was a degree of technological turmoil as well with, you know, the rise of the very, very, very early internet. I was very lucky in that my my older brother um, had a fascination with technology from when he was very young. Um, and he actually was arrested by Interpol at the age of 16 for hacking into Belgium's telephone infrastructure. And I grew up in this kind of hacker house where we were running bulletin board services and all these different things. And my brother was always fascinated by how these things worked, you know, and, and finding out new ways to get them to do, you know, different things. But I was always fascinated by what I can only describe as the kind of spiritual nature of it, this idea of being able to talk to people using technology. And I, I grew up around that and that fascination has never really left me. And a lot of my creative work, a lot of my art is informed by that, by that, that intersection of spirituality, technology, how we connect through technology. And so, yeah, to this day, decades later, you know, I'm still fascinated by it. I think for a lot of children, the internet is ubiquitous and it's just this thing that's always been there. But for me, there's always this magic, you know, kind of behind the curtain that I come back to again and again. Yeah. It's a really fascinating angle that you've uh, portrayed there. Because one of the questions that I was going to ask you next was, did you have much connection to technology in your younger years growing up in um, South Africa? So would you say that this maybe more deep-rooted interest in, in the spiritual nature of being able to connect with people through technology was something that was spurred on by your environment in South Africa? Or was it something that you felt was more of a family alignment that was nurtured by your relationship? that was exposed by your brother to the different um, tech, technological it's, opportunities? It's a bit of both, I think, mm. because, you know, growing up, I discovered there was, you know, there was this thing called sanctions, you know, which were rightfully imposed on South Africa to kind of help hasten the end of apartheid. But it meant that growing up, you know, um, there were not a lot of different TV shows that we could watch. I would remember getting a, a comic book and seeing all the ads for the cool toys you could get at the back of the comic book, and I couldn't get them. And you're really cut off from the world, you know, at that point in history, in that geography on the tip of South Africa. And I remember, you know, speaking to my grandparents in, in the UK and uh, for, you know, my birthday or for Christmas, and you would have to run to the phone if they called and you'd have to speak really quickly because the call was so expensive and it was such a, it was such a big deal to be able to talk to them. And then one day there were these things called modems and there were the, then there was this ability to just talk to people um, and connect with them. And at that point you were just talking to strangers, you know, it wasn't like today where you just, you know, you speak to your friends on Facebook, you follow people who are interesting on Twitter. Back then you had to be a very specific kind of individual to be on the internet. And so if you found someone else on a bulletin board, if you found a forum, you know, you would just, you would just start talking because it was such a, a crazy place. So to answer your question, it's, it's a bit of both. You know, my, mm -hmm. I was lucky that my brother was very technical minded. I still don't consider myself very technical minded. I consider myself more of a culturalist than a technologist, but I was lucky to be exposed to that. I was, you know, I had the broader context of where, where I was and that all kind of shaped me into who I am today, which is someone who's really fascinated by how technology connects us and how we can use technology to do new things that connect us. Mm -hmm. And as both a culturist and a poet, you're now addressing a much larger audience. I mean, you've got a couple of publications. We're obviously going to look at um, your your most recent one in a lot more detail in a minute. But let's look at what really inspired you to then start writing. 
Sure. So I didn't have a lot of, you know, artists around me in Port Elizabeth. It was a very small town growing up. I knew that I was creative. You know, I, I'd kind of I've won some art prizes and my art teacher had taken a, an interest in my work and it kind of, you know, pushed me to pursue that aspect of myself. And so I figured a very safe bet in terms of having a career was advertising and becoming something like a designer or a copywriter. And so I pursued that. I got into the industry. I was quite successful quite early on, luckily. Um, but at some point I realized that advertising is, is not art. You know, it's, uh, you have this idea, I think when you're, when you're young and you're about to go into the industry that you'll just make crazy stuff and people will pay you for that. And I realized that if I wanted to make the crazy stuff, I kind of had to just go out on my own and, and do that. So that's what I did. I just started creating random blogs and random websites and different things that I thought would be interesting and, Eventually, one of the ones that I started called I Wrote This For You over a period of a few years became ridiculously popular. It eventually became a book and it became a collection of best-selling poetry. Um, you know, we've sold luckily hundreds of thousands of copies. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind well of done, that, yeah. That, that journey. I'm not sure if that answered your question. but I, th I think it answered part of uh, what we want to forefront because I always think it's quite important to look at the start of someone's journey and mm. follow how they've ended up at this particular point. Sure. Um, and before we go into the depths of what we want to discuss today, Ian, I think it's quite good that we have the opportunity to line the stage mm. with a specific question that I think nicely sort of drapes as an entry point. Mm. So I want to I want to leave, and I said as well that we're focusing on tech, but I want to leave the tech just out of the discussion for a minute. Sure. And I want to ask you, in your own opinion, what is it that makes us human, Ian? Sure. I think it's intent and meaning, you know, um, I think when an AI creates something, I'm specifically talking about la large language models, it can't do anything without intent. It can't, you know, create anything without a specific desire to create something. It can't have that desire itself. And then an AI can understand, you know, how um, language works and how the connections between words and, and, and you know, different tokens work within that system, but it can't extract meaning from that. And so intent and meaning, you know, are really two of the, the, the big things that I think are going to become skills, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of being able to curate different things, in terms of being able to work with this technology in powerful ways. Um, I don't think um, we're heading towards a future where AI takes everyone's jobs. I think we're heading towards a future where AI augments people's jobs and allows them to create incredible things. Um, you know, obviously that's not, that's never going to be binary. It's never going to be a hundred percent, but within the last two years of working with this, that's where I think we're going. Okay. But then you would personally sort of revert back to the fundament that you believe like us as humans, that it's all about our, our own intentions and it's all mm -hmm. about meaning. Yeah. Is that subjective, objective, like a correlation of both? Like, where are we placing meaning in that sense? I think it's subjective, you know, to the individual. And then broadly, when I when I write poetry, completely divorced from technology, when mm -hmm. I'm just writing poetry, the, the, the thing that drives me is that I have felt something. I have experienced something. Um, I looked at the way that my daughter held her brother's hand, or I thought of the way I felt at a certain point in time. And the goal of, of a lot of my art and a lot of my poetry is to go, I have felt this. Have you felt this? You know, when I share that piece of art. And so 
my goal with with a lot of things is to go this i think this is subjective but i think this might be subjective to so many of us that it resonates on a profound level so it's not purely subjective or object objective in that sense and that's the nature of creativity and art i think mm-hmm. and i think that that's a really beautiful segue onto what is my next question so the publication of your book what makes us human an artificial intelligence answers life's biggest questions. It came out in November 2022. Mm. What triggered then your enthusiasm to create, and I've used this sort of verb intentionally, create this specific publication? And what do you want your readership to take away from this publication in particular? So to answer those 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 two different questions, um, back in 2020, I started working with a startup called copysmith.ai, which was founded by Jasmine Wang, my my co-author. Um, I had for a long time theorized that a lot of copywriting could be automated based on the nature of my day-to-day work as a copywriter occasionally. And when I saw her product on Product Hunt, I reached out to her. I managed to have a video call with her in Canada while she was having breakfast. And I said, I have to be involved in this. I have to understand what's going on here. And she kind of took my hand and, and walked me through GPT-3 and how and how these different things worked and the different prompts. And so I consulted with them. I said, this is how I, as a Grand Prix winning copywriter, write headlines. This is how I think of ideas. And I worked out how to turn my thinking process into a series of prompts with GPT-3 and embedding them within that product, which was which was really fascinating. At the same time, my mother was terminally ill, and this was during the pandemic. So she was approaching the end of her life. I was in the same situation. A lot of people were where I couldn't be by her bedside, you know, when she was passing. I'm sorry to hear that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I I had a very traumatic experience where eventually I said, I'm just, I'm just going to drive to where she is, which was 16 hours away. And I will just be outside the house. I won't go inside. And I got halfway there when then my aunt phoned me and said she's passed, you know. So I turned the car around. I had to then, you know, explain to my children what had happened. And it was it was incredibly traumatic. And, you know, at the same time, I was working with all this different technology. And I a week or two after that experience, I realized if I can train GPT-3 and prompt it with all these different headlines I've written, all these different ads I've thought of, maybe I can prompt it on anything. So I sat down and I took a passage from the Bible, you know, uh, you know, love is kind, love is patient, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Then I found something inspiring in Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Then I found something inspiring in the poetry of Rumi, then a lyric from Leonard Cohen. And I turned it into a series of questions and answers as a prompt, almost as a, a patent conversation. And then I asked it one more question. I said, how do I explain death to my children? And the response from GPT-3 was profound and poignant and beautiful. And then I asked it another question and another question and another question. And I I realized that there was something really fascinating happening. Um, and so I explained to Jasmine what I was doing. I you know spoke to my agents, my literary agents about what I was doing. Then I started asking the community around me, you know, if you could ask the universe one question, what would you ask? And I started sourcing those questions from there and eventually, you know, compiled this collection and this book mm-hmm. into what it is today. In terms of what I want people to get out of it, I think it, it, the, a lot of the poetry in it is poignant and beautiful. I'm biased, obviously, as the editor of it more than the writer of it. Some of it is disjointed. And I think that's intentional on my part, because ultimately I want people to be aware of what AI is possible of. 
Because a lot of people are are looking at it and going, oh, this can write headlines. This can write Google ads. This can do this. This can do that. The goal with this and a lot of the other art and things that I'm working on is to go, so much more is possible. I often compare the current point of AI to be almost like the discovery of steam power. You understand that steam gives you steam engines, Mm -hmm. but you don't realize it leads to this moment of industrialization you know, where there's suddenly all these different opportunities. And with a lot of my creative work, I'm kind of trying to punch out that universe and go, look, you can do this and look, you can do this and look, you can do this. So in listening to that, it almost feels like you've sort of jumped camps, that you've Mm. jumped camps from the expression of trying to create an identification with a feeling through the maybe the intrinsic desire as a poet or as an author or as a culturist into, oh, I want to make sure that people understand that AI is possible of such such good things. Is that correct? Am I understanding that correctly? I guess so in a sense, <laughs> but I don't entirely agree because I think the act of creating this is a way of me saying, I see this profound thing. I see this profound potential. Mm-hmm. Do you see that? Do you feel that? You know, and so I'm still doing the same thing. I'm just doing it in a different kind of way, I think. And what did you particularly maybe, well, what what was this profoundness that resonated with you? Because you also mentioned that maybe there's certain biases that you bring in as the editor and maybe a certain subjectivity um, given the nature of the prompt. Mm. What, What was profound? I, I'll tell you what, I will read you the response to how do, how do I explain death to my children? Yeah. Encourage them to celebrate the lives of other people. Tell them that the dead are not dead, not in the way we think of it. Tell them they live on as they are remembered. Tell them every goodbye is really a hello to a different way of being. Tell them they are loved and will always be loved. Tell them they never have to feel alone. Never. Tell them the world is magical and mysterious and strange. Tell them they are part of the mystery and the magic and the beauty of it. Yeah, it's very beautiful. I I thought so. I didn't write it. I edited it a little bit. You know, in terms of the degree to which I edited it, I added line breaks. I might have taken off a sentence or two. Working with a large uh, language model for this kind of project is a lot like 3D printing. What comes out of the 3D printer isn't perfect. You have to sit and sand it and kind of shape it a little bit. But I understand as a poet who's published several books, um, some of them, you know, very successfully, what good poetry looks like and good insight and good human connection. And I could see it within what GPT-3 was responding with, that there were these moments where I was, you know, taken aback and 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 felt this intense connection to the universe and i i think more importantly to the people around me because that's the the nature of large language models i think you know uh, the, a lot of people go there is this thing over there called gpt3 and i'm over here and it's doing something but we forget gpt3 is trained on the text of humans it's mm-hmm. trained on our history it's trained on for better or for worse, and that's a whole conversation, you know, uh, in itself on our, on our history. But when you're working with GPT-3 or a really good large language model, you're working with the sum total of recorded human knowledge in a way. You're, you're working with every human who's come before you. And so when you're talking to it, you're in a way you're talking to everyone, you know. And so I see that kind of profound, beautiful human connection in the work itself. 
Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, if we do, I mean, GPT, I think it was, GPT-3, it was it was built on the data from the Common Crawl data set. So it is a collection mm-hmm. of, as you've mentioned, copyrighted articles, internet posts, web pages and books that are scraped from 60 million domains over a period of 12 years. Mm-hmm. Did you, I mean, you yourself, you've had a lot of exposure to language because mm-hmm. of your job. Did you see any prominent narratives that come from maybe one region or one region over another or any sort of periods? Did you see any, I don't know, misrepresentation or were you happy with with what it gave you? I was happy with what it gave me because of what I was giving it. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's very much, you know, garbage in, garbage out, gold in, gold out, you know. And so because of the prompts that I'd used pretty reliably, I got really good generations. Um, in terms of themes that emerged, if you take the world's most spiritual texts, if you take, you know, all these different things from lyrics to bumper stickers to, you know, whatever is inspiring and, and brings us a sense of awe, it comes back to to three different things again and again. And those three things, you know, the first is very unsurprisingly love, that love is the meaning of life, ultimately, that we w- we're here to love and to, to love each other, you know, while we're here. The second is to connect to the present moment, to come back to the present moment as often as possible, which is, you know, quite often the the point of any piece of art is to kind of bring you back into the present. Um, and then the third, which came up more often than anything else, I think, was this idea that we're all connected, that we're connected in this really fundamental way to each other, to the universe around us. And I think that there's a kind of serendipity there with the fact that it is a large language model that connects you to language, that connects you to history, that connects you to other humans, you know? So those are the three kinds of things that came through in the text again and again. Yeah, very much again. I was also thinking also about the the irony as well. Hmm. Um, I mean, if we're looking at the message solely of, you know, bring yourself back to the present, enjoy the present, live for the moment. And then we're looking at the use of technology and how technology sometimes doesn't always allow us to enjoy the, the moment. But again, I suppose it's the actual application of how we're using technology and what we're using technology for. Mm. Which would lead me then into to, to thinking, do you see tools like this and efforts like your own being powerful tools to motion social change, to bring about more spirituality? I mean, you've used GPT-3 and you've used the, the sort of the study, the implementation of the large language model. We're, we're encouraging more connection from connection. What, what's your own opinion on that? How would you like to see the, the tool used? I would like people to be involved in the conversation around artificial intelligence. And I would like them to be involved in it from a very informed point of view as much uh, as much as they can be. I understand not all of us can be data scientists, but we can all start to with, you know, different projects start to grasp what it means and what it's capable of. And so, yes, on one hand, I I I do believe the world needs more spirituality. I'm not sure it needs more religion. I think it needs more spirituality and more and more feelings of connectedness between people. And I think that there is a way to do that without mysticism, which is quite interesting. And that's and I think that for a lot of young people, that's what they're looking for. And I think that if we can find that for them, then that would be a very powerful tool for them 
the other aspect of what I'm doing is I'm trying to, you know, chat GPT hadn't come out when I, when I was doing this book, there wasn't a conversation around, around AI. And I, I, I really believe that there needed to be one because I think that my personal opinion, having worked in this space for the past, you know, two years or, or so, having run different projects and different experiments um, with this and other technologies, is that I believe that AI will probably dwarf the internet in terms of its impact on society, in terms of how we work, how we create media, how we create culture, how we connect to each other, how we learn. All of these different things, I think, are going to be profoundly impacted over the next five to 10 years. And so my goal is to speak about it and to, to, for people to go, look, you know, look at all these different things. I think AI is at its most boring when we use it to do things that we can already do well. And so what I'm trying to do is go, yes, you know, you can get it to replace a junior copywriter. You can get it to replace a junior designer using, you know, generative platforms like Dali or Midjourney. But you can do it. You can also use it to do this, which is something new that's never been done before, which is a completely new way of engaging with media or a completely new way of creating something or a completely new way of, you know, anything like that. I have another project called Fragments of Sappho. Sappho was a poetess that lived a very, very, very long time ago. A lot of her poetry doesn't exist anymore. It only exists as, as tiny fragments, these incredibly beautiful sentences. Okay. And even though we only have those tiny fragments, we all agree that she's, she's one of the greatest poets that ever lived. In fact, only two of her poems exist in their entirety. And I worked out one day that I could show GPT-3 the two complete poems, and then feed it the fragments one by one by one, and it would try and complete the poems, the last poems from thousands of years ago. And that's something we've never been able to do before. You know, whether whether those the recreations are completely accurate or not, all I'm trying to do again and again with my work is going, is go, hey, look, this, there's this new thing. There's this new thing. There's this new thing. I mean, and it, it's very true. And I certainly align with a lot of what you're saying. I mean, the space is fascinating and then there certainly is necessity for many of us that are not only working in the industry, but those that are, actively becoming more involved in the industry to open our eyes um, to magical things that are happening with the application of the technology. Um, mm -hmm. It's also fascinating, you know, what we're motioning ourselves um, at Squirrel. Mm -hmm. With what you've forefronted, again, at the end, there's also the sort of other side of the coin where we're looking at, you know, what about the regulations or if we're looking at the creative disruption that it causes two jobs like that? Um, if we're looking like at the regulation of technologies around GPT-3, around chat GPT in the creative field, um, mm. you know, at the moment, decoupling in the sense of when different countries stop working together, mm. it, it, it is a big problem right now. And the conversation is yeah. also an important one to have. So if we're looking at the implementation or the use of AI technologies, or if we're looking at in particular GPT-3 or chat GPT, in the creative field. Sure. Do you think that there's still a long way to go in terms of regulation around the use of these technologies? What's your own opinion in terms of, you know, the, the technological pairing with the creative mind? Mm. 
my my feeling on legislation on you know on on the the kind of framework within which we engage with ai is that we're moving very 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 slowly which is the nature of legislation you know i i think that open ai for example has a very noble goal in terms of um you know they they want to bring about artificial general intelligence for the betterment of all mankind we have another camp like the work that Stable Diffusion is doing, where they're very much embracing a kind of Wild West. You know, it's open and it's up to everyone to use this technology how they see fit. And and, and they see that, you know, and potentially they're right, you know, as a more kind of noble approach to this. But the way I personally see it is that, you know, 50 years ago, the rise of scratching and sampling created hip hop. You know, which was one of the most profound cultural forces on society um, in the last hundred years. And that was around taking different forms of creative expression, reinterpreting them. Obviously, today, when you release a record that has samples on it, you pay those copyright holders a set fee and there's remuneration and there is a framework. But it didn't start like that. We need to start. We need to start looking at like, what does ethical AI look like? How do we, how does this benefit humanity broadly? How does this ensure that there is a a framework and a way for people to work with this in a way that is equitable to everyone? I'm not sure what that looks like. I'm not an economist. Intrinsically, I believe that probably if you're using something like this in a in a in a way that takes away a lot of jobs, it should probably be taxed quite a lot so that there is more societal programs that benefit everyone. What is quite fascinating to me is the legislator is moving moving very slowly. Young people, as always, are moving very quickly. You know, um, on the Mid Journey Discord server, the last time I checked, there was more than five million people on that server. The next biggest one is the one for Fortnite, which is one of the biggest games yes. in the world mm -hmm. that barely has a million. Then you look at the right, you know, ChatGPT, which came out what two months ago. I think within five days, it had a million users. And that's that's an insane amount of growth, an insane amount of uptake in a very, 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 you know, short period of time. I don't see politicians talking about this. I see, you know, and if they do talk about it, I think it comes from a place of fear of catering to a specific base within their constituency. I think that conversation needs to be informed and and everything needs to move a little bit faster to catch up with people. And we've got um, some some good speakers on this season as well that want to forefront the importance of obviously ethical use of AI. Mm. And I think that it's also important for future generations that we're not the ones that are responsible for carrying a lot of outdated ideologies and a lot of unnecessary biases into future uses of technology. You know, we want to be conscious of ensuring yeah. that we can promote more of a fair environment, especially Abs when we're, we're actually included. I think, um, artificial you, know, intelligence. you know, the nature of AI is that it uses our, our history to create our future. And so we need to be very careful about what parts of our history and what we talk about to, to create that future. So yes, absolutely. I think it's one of the biggest conversations around AI right now. Definitely. Exactly. Maybe we can get you back in in a, a few months <laughs> and sure. we can see um, how the development of your your new research project is uh, going mm -hmm. it's been fascinating today though Ian um, I 
really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you. Um, from two angles, obviously as a technologist, but also as a, a linguist myself. Um, mm -hmm. Now I have to go and make sure that I look into your book a lot more and read uh, all your publications. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about AI, machine learning and search, then go to the Squirrel Academy at learn.squirrel.com. Thank you.